We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. We welcome you this morning on this fine, snowy, New Year Sunday morning. Happy New Year to you all. I trust the Lord will prosper you and bless you this year, even as your souls prosper in Christ. That will be the case for you. We're glad to see you all here today. Let's turn our Bibles to Philippians, please, this morning in chapter 1, Philippians and the first chapter. The title of our message this morning is Conduct Worthy of the Gospel. Conduct Worthy of the Gospel. Why? Well, that's what the text says. In Philippians 1, we're going back now to chapter 1 because we jumped ahead in chapter 2 to catch the verses that are really relevant for the incarnation and the Christmas season. So we're going to go back and finish chapter 1, God willing, today. And it says in verse 27, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you, a proof is what we should understand being supplied there, or elided, ellipsis it's called, but a proof to you of salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here is in me. So last time uh, we were in chapter 1, remember we looked at the Apostle Paul's uh, situation with regard to life and death, and uh, he wanted to make sure that whatever happened to him, whether he lived or whether he died, that Christ would be magnified. And in that, we said that he has a hopeful outlook on both life and death. It's not like he writes off uh, life and says, that's not worth living, I want to go to heaven, and it's not like, you know, uh, you know, that going to heaven is so great that life isn't worth it, or that he doesn't want to die because that's so unpleasant of a thought. He wants to stay here at all costs. So he has both intention with one another. It's good to be here, and it's good to be in heaven. It's better to depart and be with Christ, but yet it's more necessary, he said, for me, I, he believed at that time, to stick around so that he could offer fruit, labor to God and ministry to the Philippians and others so that they might receive uh, benefit of that ministry and he might receive more fruit. So to live is Christ. There's, you can't say there's anything bad about that, can you? To die is gain. You can't say anything's really bad about that either. So Paul has this two-sided view of things which helps him to process, well, whatever God has for me, that's what we're going to do. And he wanted to make sure that God was magnified whether he lived or whether he died. 
Now, he had a kind of a somehow a special insight, if you look with me at chapter 1, just back a few verses, um, a special insight that though he, you know, he couldn't really choose between the two, live or die, uh, he said, nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you, and being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress of joy, or progress and joy, rather, of faith. So he had some insight that it looks like God is going to have me stay and not be extinguished just now so that I can continue on and minister to you folks. There were a number of, uh, I believe, I don't know how many, I haven't thought this through, but a number of New Testament letters that had yet to be written, a number of churches that had to be edified. Paul couldn't go anywhere in God's plan uh, and as, as some have said, not to be too uh, cavalier about it, but you're not going anywhere until God is done with you. And that doesn't mean to be reckless and stupid and all of that, but it does mean that you don't have to be going you know, along in fear, looking around every corner like, what's going to get me? Live, 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 live for Christ and uh, honor Him. <clears throat> so, he thinks he's going to stay. He has confidence of that and uh, that he would see them again. In fact, when he wrote to Philemon, he said, I trust to be delivered to you shortly. So he asked him to prepare a guest room for him. That's how certain he was that I'm going to be coming. So I'd like to uh, be able to stay with you uh, in the upcoming days. The passage that we're looking at this morning shifts gears Paul has been from verse 12 of chapter 1 up to verse 26 talking about his own situation. Now he's going to talk about the Philippians particularly. And he says to them, only let your conduct. The church in Philippi, it's going to mean fruit for his labor. If it doesn't, he's going to depart and be with Christ. That's far better. But in Paul's absence, however long that is, he says, whether I come and see you, see that in verse 27, or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, of your situation is what it means, your things, your business there, what's going on, and be encouraged that you're standing fast with one spirit. So regardless, and this is kind of interesting, you know, he's saying whether or not the overseer is present, your conduct should be worthy of the gospel. Uh, whether the cat is present or away, the mice should have conduct worthy of good mice. Okay? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so he says, look, just because I'm not there doesn't really make any difference. But in fact, it would be very good if I wasn't there and I was able to hear of good things happening there. The word did spread. You know, they didn't have uh, text messages and email and all that wonderful technology, but somehow... Uh, like in Thessalonica, they received the gospel and that news spread all over the place. This, this city has a new church in it and there are people there that have converted and have, have turned away from idolatry. Can you believe it? And it spread all over. And so this kind of news would, would make it back to the Apostle Paul. People would travel to him to help him, to support him, to supply him with what he needed. And News would go back and forth that way, somewhat slower than what we might like today. Uh, we've lost a lot of patience, though, I think, 
in our, in our day. We've got to know, you know everything right now. It's like you can't wait two days to get some piece of information. It's like, settle down. It'll come. You know, sometimes I've answered emails or a phone call a day or two later or three, and, and it's like uh, almost, you know, well, why didn't you call me, you know, three minutes after you got my text? Well, there were a few other things going on that I can't really, you know, give you all the details about. So we need to have that kind of patience, but that's not my point this morning. Paul is trying to remind us not only of worthy conduct, but what he's going to say is he wants us to have unified, unified gospel conduct, particularly in verse 27. Notice what he says here. He wants your conduct to be worthy of the gospel. Now we could park there and we could just talk about that, and I will a little bit. But notice he says, so that whether I come or I'm absent, I may hear of your affairs. And here's what he wants to hear that you stand fast in one spirit and with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. And then he goes on in 28, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries. There's really two things that he's trying to to get across to them, how he wants their their church to look. Um, You know, if you stop at let your conduct be worthy of the gospel, that, that is a broad statement. I mean, that covers a lot of spiritual ground. Uh, it, you know, it could be, um, you know, like when, when Paul says to the Thessalonians, back to them again, he says, talking about uh, their living, that they would conduct themselves in a way worthy of the kingdom of God to which they have been called. Of course, they're not in the kingdom yet. They must, through many tribulations, enter into the kingdom of God, but they were to be citizens of that kingdom, and they were to live worthy uh, lives of that. Or Romans chapter 14 talks about uh, living a worthy, in a worthy manner with regard to the coming kingdom. So uh, to live worthy is to, in short, live righteously as an ambassador for Jesus in your world. Now, that's this world, but your world is a little different than my world, right? Your world has certain people in it that my world never will touch, and you need to live in your world as an ambassador for Christ righteously Why? Because the gospel calls us to be a kind of special people called out of darkness into his marvelous light to sing forth his praises. That's 1 Peter 2.9. We are a royal priesthood, are we not? Yes. And he's redeemed us so that we would be particularly interested in good works. Remember, we looked at that when we did our study in Titus. Uh, You know, let our people maintain good works which are useful uh, he says we've been redeemed in order to do those things. Ephesians 2 says, you know, we're saved by grace through faith to do good works that God has ordained before that we should walk in them. And so he has a plan for us, a general plan to work and live for him and to praise his name. Conduct unworthy of the gospel is impermissible to the Apostle Paul. It's not okay. It's not you know, like, oh, well, that's what people do, and, you know, immature Christians, you know, it's whatever, whatever. Uh, you cannot say that you are a follower of Christ and then not follow him. You with me? If you're a follower of Christ, why don't you follow him? <laughs> or if you're a follower of Christ, you should actually follow him. 
In other words, what he's saying, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel. He's saying you need to be people of integrity. Your yes needs to be yes and your no needs to be no in this respect. If you say yes to Christ, live it. If you're not going to live for him, then just say no and just tell it like it is. Just, just be honest. Don't be dishonest. Don't be, in other words, a hypocrite. What you say, you believe and practice. You do your best to believe and practice rather than being that hypocrite. Isaiah 29 rebuked God's people in saying to them, these people draw near to me with their mouths, you know, their lips. Their words is what it means. Their talk, but that talk is cheap because he says their hearts are nowhere near me. They've gone off and their own thing. Their hearts are really here. And the Lord Jesus picked that same thing up when he talked to uh, the people in Matthew chapter 15 about those who teach for doctrines the commandments of men. So he's calling for sincerity here. Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel. You're a church. You've professed to be followers of Christ. You profess to believe the gospel. Now be that way. Actually be that way. And if they did live with sincerity and genuineness, then Paul would hear from afar of their conduct and he would be encouraged that they were progressing in their joy and in their faith. And to do this, they were to do two things particularly in this passage. One is to maintain unity, to stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now, in an earlier edition of my notes, I was... uh, I tended toward kind of splitting those phrases up. But I realized the better way for our purpose this morning is to combine those three phrases together, not to divide them up, but to say they're really talking about the same thing. Standing fast, one mind, striving together. One spirit, by the way. Standing fast in one spirit, one mind, and striving together. So you have this this union, this unity, this communion together of the church it's phrased, you know, covered by all these phrases, standing fast with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Not two minds, not three minds, not everybody has their own mind, not everybody going, you know, out this way in every direction, but pulling in the same different direction. And the second uh, way that Paul wants to see them progress in the faith and to be worthy of the gospel is in verse 28, not terrified by your enemies. Let me put it this way, as I did in my notes. He wants us not only to be united, but to be courageous. Courageous, to have courage, to not be fearful. I put, I was going to put to not be fearful, but then I said, you know what, I'm going to turn that around and I'm going to put the positive uh, word to it. What is he really asking us? He's asking us to have courage to, yes, in other words, not be afraid. That's too much of a problem today, my friends, too much fear going around. Now, back to the first point, unity. The general idea uh, is unity of goal, of purpose, of mind, of affection for the gospel of Christ. Then the lifestyle that you have in that direction will be an obvious follow-on to this mindset. Your mindset is to be like Christ. It's to live in accordance with the gospel. Underlying this is that the believers are to persevere in the faith. Okay, this is the more 
could I say, I'm going to go from general to specific. The more general idea is that we would persevere in the faith. That is, we would continue to have, ask yourself as I go through this brief list, we would continue to have personal faith, you believe, in Christ, yes? Sound doctrine, you know, you believe in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, salvation by grace through faith alone, not by works. You believe in the Trinity. You believe in the virgin birth. You believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, the substitutionary atonement. You believe in the resurrection in, can I say it, in body, bodily resurrection of Jesus. We're not talking about a ghostly resurrection or an idea resurrection, a real resurrection. So you, you persevere in, in personal faith. You continue in sound doctrine. And your life evidences it through good works. That's what you're, those three things you ask yourself. Am I continuing to believe? Am I continuing to maintain sound doctrine? Or am I kind of waffling a little bit? Am I kind of saying, eh, well, you know, there's a lot of people out there that believe differently. That's okay. No. And then thirdly, good works. Now, the good works here, I might say, are not just general good works, but maybe a little more specifically focused on the, on the gospel ministry of the church. But regardless, your life needs to be marked by good works. On top of this general foundation, Paul is calling for us to be unified. The church is set to be a light in the world. Okay? The lighthouse metaphor is a good one. We are a lighthouse. We are supposed to be a lighthouse, but we will not shine brightly if we are not working together for the faith of the gospel. If people are in the church family and in our church family or generally in any church family are working at cross purposes to one another or have agendas of their own or interested in the kind of mm, worldly ideas of politics and power and influence and, and a position and status and all of that or wanting to be up front or whatever, uh, pride would drive us to think or want, then you're going to have all kinds of you know, weakness in your external kind of work towards the community and in your, and in your internal work. Uh, you know, if you want a bright light, you've got to have a low resistance in the wires that drive that light. You know? You've got to have low resistance to the things of God if you want your light to shine brightly. Okay. Each of us needs then to be forbearing, forgiving, willing to bend to what the scripture teaches. I can't tell you how many times I've heard the idea, well, I don't like, I don't like what that says, or, or uh, I don't like what Paul says, or, um, you know, I, but I believe who cares about what you believe? Sorry to burst your bubble, but I mean, if you've got some idea that's extra biblical outside of the bounds of Scripture, then we just have to part ways. I mean, you have to put that aside. Uh, we have to bend to what the Scripture teaches, be willing to change our view uh, so that we can accomplish this God-ordained unity, which, by the way, that unity is first established by whom? In the church. 
Ephesians chapter 4 says it's the unity of the Spirit that we endeavor to keep. That's the unity bonded together in the body by, by the Spirit of God, and it has to be maintained by diligent attention in the church. And so I'm saying some of these things to kind of, you know, because I think the passage teaches them, but I think it's a great passage for us at the beginning of a new year to remind ourselves what it is that we're about as a church. And I'll go into a little bit more of that just now. An implication of this is if we're going to be of one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, uh, unified, we need to have an agreed-upon direction toward which we are headed. Our church's doctrinal statement and constitution form the basic foundation of that common shared direction, and our church covenant is a part of that constitution, and we should revisit it once in a while. What is a church covenant? It's an agreement that we make. It's the agreement that we have made together as a group of believers as to how we want to conduct ourselves, how we strive to conduct ourselves in the faith of the gospel. Our worship services implement that doctrine and practice, but also we need to have a common way that we desire to work with one another and with outsiders, with the church. We We need to have a common shared practice about how we interact with one another in love and mutual admonition and encouragement. So what I thought I'd do at this point is just use this moment as a moment of application to remind us what is our church covenant? What is it when we're members of this church that we are all about? And if you're an official member of the church, then you will have reviewed this with me before in your membership class, and uh, we've touched this before, not every year, but I thought it would be very good for us to do this year, for me just to read it and for you to think, here's what our declaration of faith is, here's what our church covenant is, here's what we've agreed together uh, to do with regard to our membership, our being a part of one another. As we strive together for the faith of the gospel, to have that unity that Paul calls us to have, here's what our church covenant says starts with 2 Chronicles 15, 12. And they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord God of their fathers with all their heart and with all their soul. Okay, and so we're, obviously that didn't talk about the church, but it does readily apply to any group of people that want to follow God. And then it says this, Having been led, as we believe, by the Spirit of God, to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, And on profession of our faith, having been baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we do now in the presence of God, angels and this assembly most solemnly and joyfully enter into covenant with one another as one body in Christ. I want you to notice that for members in our church, it's required that you have been born again, that you've made a profession of faith, and that you've been baptized in the triune name of God, okay, after your profession of faith. It says, and on profession of faith, having been baptized, not baptized as an infant. Then it goes on. We promise by the aid of the Holy Spirit. This has been an issue that some have raised before. What do you, what do you mean you're making a covenant and making these promises with one another? Well, remember... The text is very carefully worded here. It's not Scripture, but it's our aim to try to reflect the teaching of Scripture in a general way. 
And the text is careful to say, we promise, by the aid of the Holy Spirit, we cannot do this on our own. We cannot live the Christian life by ourselves. So with his aid, he promised to forsake the paths of sin and to walk in the ways of holiness all the days of our lives. With this view, we engage to strive together. Hmm, interesting, those words, strive together. For the advancement of the church and knowledge, holiness and comfort, to promote its prosperity and spirituality, to sustain its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrines, to contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support, to the support rather, of the ministry and the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel throughout all nations. I want you to notice that. You're promising as a member to strive together to advance the church, to promote its prosperity, to sustain its worship, ordinances, discipline, doctrines, to contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry. That's what you promised to do as members of the church. Next paragraph. We also promise to maintain family and private devotions, to educate our children according to the scriptures, to seek the salvation of our kindred and acquaintances, to walk circumspectly in the world, to be just in our dealings, faithful in our engagements, and exemplary in our deportment. Again, if you're a member of Fellowship Bible Church, that's what you're saying my life is about. And to be zealous in our efforts to advance the testimony and cause of Christ. I know there's something in here for all of us to remind ourselves, hmm, I need to brush up on that point or improve in that area of my walk with the Lord. We further promise to walk together in Christian love and watchfulness, giving and receiving admonition with meekness and affection, to remember each other in prayer, to aid each other in sickness and distress, to cultivate Christian sympathy and feeling and courtesy and speech, to be slow to take offense but always ready for reconciliation and mindful of the command of our Savior to secure that reconciliation without delay. It's too, too often the case in our sin nature. We're quick to take offense and slow to be reconciled. But this, doctrinal, or this part of our doctrinal statement reminds us to be slow to take offense and quick to be reconciled. We moreover promise that when we remove from this locality, we will, as soon as possible, unite with another church of like stand where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's word. Now, are you a yes-means-yes person or are you not? Are you a person of integrity? If you have joined the church and made this covenant with us, then it's your responsibility to hold up your end. And if you don't do that, then know that you're not being a person of integrity. Okay? We need that. Our conduct has to be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so what we say we're going to do, we need to do. And if we can't do that, then we need to move our membership to a church where we can do that. I don't like to say that. I don't say that lightly. But, you know, listen, I've got to do something as a shepherd. I can't, let, I can't just let sheep just wander. Okay, I'm going to call the sheep into the fold and into the unified conduct of the gospel. That's a responsibility that I have. As unpleasant as you or I may think that responsibility is, it is a responsibility. 
Now, Paul calls for not just this unified conduct, but he also calls for courage in the face of opposition. Courage in the face of opposition. He wants to see operational in the church this notion that we are not afraid of our adversaries. How many of us have been afraid of our adversaries in these last days? How many? I'm not, I'm not asking you to give me the Sunday school answer that you know you're supposed to give. You know, while you, you know, sit in a corner afraid, but you say, no, actually, you know, the Bible tells me I'm not to be afraid. I'm asking you what you really believe, what you really think. Are you fearful of what might come in terms of persecution and opposition, which may bring inconvenience and suffering, but we are not to be afraid of it. The man who fears the Lord does not fear bad news. Okay? Psalm 112, verse 7. You got it, brother. Very good. Our hearts are steadfast, trusting in the Lord. You know, how you behave really shows what you fear, doesn't it? Yeah. And so a fearful attitude is opposed to a faithful attitude. It's the opposite of that. The focus of fear is the self and and the party inducing the fear. The focus of faith is outward to the object of faith, which is God. Or, Or we could say that, you know, what you fear the most will be demonstrated either through faith toward God or fear toward man. Why should you not be afraid? Well, Matthew 10.28 gives us a couple of thoughts on that. For one thing, suffering imposed by humans can only go so far. It can only go so far. They can only kill the body. I know that can torture the body and persecute and cause all kinds of problems. But after that, there's nothing more that they can do since all they'll do is cause you to depart and be with Christ, which we already talked about was far better. For another thing, mankind is not to be feared as much as the one who can kill the body and cast the soul into hell. Uh, Do you realize the one with whom we have to do? Hebrews 10.31 tells us it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We should fear God because he can consign a soul to eternal punishment or provide eternal rescue from unrighteousness into righteousness. Now, go on and look at verse 28. Don't be terrified by your adversaries, he's saying, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation. Now, this takes some unwinding here to understand this portion. It's a little bit involved, I think, and it's a difficult concept for me to grasp a hold of. It has been in the past. Here's what Paul is saying. This is to them a a proof or a sign or an evidence or a manifestation of perdition, and it's at the same time a sign for another thing, of salvation for you. So Paul is saying that the display of your courage in the face of persecution, is a twofold sign. It points in two directions. In the first direction, it points toward those who are the persecutors. We're not frightened at persecution. This forms a proof to the persecutors that they are in big trouble. 
What, is, what do I mean by big trouble? Well, look at the verse. It's a proof of, okay, if this was the, uh, you know, Matt Postiff living paraphrase, it would be to them a proof of big trouble. It's a proof of perdition. You know what perdition is? It's destruction. It's hell. It's eternal condemnation. They are destined for destruction because of their unrighteous activity. Your, your soul, when you read of things that happen to martyrs of centuries gone by, or even in the New Testament martyrs, or some in the Old Testament, your soul shudders to think what God has in store for those who worked that persecution upon God's people. The fact that the church does not fear them tells them that there's something bigger to fear. The fact that you don't fear your persecutor putting you in jail or whatever is a testimony to them that you actually fear something more than them and you are not going to bow to break the fear-faith relationship you have with God in order to bow to them. So that's a testimony that there is something bigger beyond behind the scenes with whom the persecutors will have to deal with in due course. From the unbeliever's perspective, the fact that a Christian does not fear the persecution is a sign or a proof or an omen that something ominous awaits them. That's what the big trouble is. But secondly... Patiently taking suffering without being terrified is also a proof of faith in the believer. So it's a sign towards the persecutor, but it's also a sign towards ourselves and thus of God's work of providing salvation who entrust themselves to Christ. So when the believer perseveres in faith and sound doctrine and good works, even under the pressure of suffering, He shows his or her faith, and God promises salvation to those who have that kind of real faith, right? So it's a sign of destruction. It's a sign of salvation. It's a two-way sign, this idea of being courageous in the face of opposition. Some of our fellow Christians and ministers have had to exercise that very thing in the last two years. Sadly, in Canada and even in the United States, when... Religious liberties are forgotten by those who are in charge. They don't like them. They don't want them. They think they know better. And they have put pastors in jail and closed churches and caused people to have to demonstrate this kind of uh, persevering faith and courage in the face of opposition. It has happened, and I... Well, we've said that this was going to happen for many years. We've expected it, and it's beginning to show its ugly face even in the Western world. Now, Paul goes on and gives an explanation further about this suffering, and that's in verses 29 and 30. And let me quickly go through these. The Christian mindset regarding suffering is important to consider. We're not talking about suffering in general now, okay? Suffering happens to everybody. We have some people we've prayed for recently that are suffering in the hospital or in a nursing home or in hospice care or whatever. That suffering comes to us all. That's suffering because we live in a sin-cursed world. It comes to unbelievers and believers alike. 
we're talking about what kind of suffering here? Persecution suffering, okay? That, that particular kind, which is on behalf of Christ. You know, it's not that you have cancer on behalf of Christ. But if you're in jail because you're a Christian, that's you're in jail like you're in chains because of Christ. Okay, so uh, the suffering specifically about being a Christian, the emphasis on connected to Christ, not just run-of-the-mill suffering. Now, we're expected to suffer because Jesus did, and in John 15, he says, look, if they hated me, they're certainly going to hate you. Uh, he left uh, us footsteps that we should walk in them. He suffered for us, and then he was glorified after that. Uh, the suffering is a pathway to glory for Christ, and it's the same for us as unbelievers. And we should remember, too, by the way, maybe I should have put this in the why not be afraid section. Why not be afraid? Well, Jesus promised a special blessing on those who are persecuted. Remember the Beatitudes? Blessed are those who suffer and are persecuted for righteousness' sake. They're going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. They're going to be blessed. Matthew 10, 12, and uh, rather 5, 10, and 5, 12. And there are also some what I call here and now benefits of suffering, the, the work of patience and holiness that is wrought in a person's soul if, uh, that they wouldn't have if everything were smooth sailing. You know, we kind of get lazy about our faith in smooth sailing circumstances. But there are two explanations given for suffering here in this text. One has to do with the Philippians' connection to Christ, and one has to do with their connection to the Apostle Paul in the next two verses, respectively. For to you, it has been granted, verse 29, it's been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Suffering, believe, get this, get this, suffering is a grace gift of God. The new uh, Revised Standard Version, which I don't refer to often, but I found this was interesting. They said this, that God graciously grants you the privilege of suffering. What did the apostles say after they were beaten? They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Christ. They weren't just like some nobody Christians. They were ones that God counted to be strong enough to be able to handle that kind of persecution. It was freely given by God. It was a, it's a good thing in a sense from God, God counting people worthy to suffer shame for his name. Now, God only, not only gives us the privilege to believe, did you see that? Not only to believe, but also to suffer for his sake. Notice that it is a privilege to believe. It is a gift. And it is a gift, just like, remember um, in Acts 11, the, the Jewish people that Peter talked to said, ah, oh, so God has granted to the Gentiles repentance unto life. He's granted it to them. He's given it to them as a grace gift. In the same way, God has granted as a grace to us the grace of suffering when that comes. We suffer for His sake. The grace of belief brings a relationship with Christ. The relationship with Christ comes with an unfortunate side effect. The world hates you. The world hates the way you think. That hatred has just been... In our culture, it's been kind of uh, restricted very heavily because of the Christian influence over the centuries in our 
culture. But that Christian influence is being unloosed. That restraint is being unloosed, and we're now seeing what was hidden in the hearts of corporate humanity against the person and work of Jesus Christ and his doctrine. So it's a good thing to have a personal relationship with Christ. It's saving. It's essential, but it brings an inherent liability with it from the perspective of our relationship to the world. Now, how is it that you suffer on behalf of Christ? Well, I'll just summarize it this way. He suffered on our behalf so that we could have eternal life. You suffer on his behalf so that others can hear the gospel message and have eternal life. Your suffering, your persecution, our per, you know, those pastors who have been suffering for the gospel have actually served to, to, to multiply the message of the gospel. It becomes more well-known and heard because of what has happened to them. So we suffer so that his name can be spread abroad. We don't suffer in some kind of you know, atoning way. That's not possible because all the atonement was done and finished. We're also to expect suffering, though, according to verse 30, because of what God's other servants have experienced. Um, you know, we, we uh, might maybe be like Peter and say, well, what about this man? Speaking of John, Jesus says, look, don't worry about him. You got his, well, I'll, I'll take care of him. You just worry about you, basically. But, you know, others have suffered, other Christians have suffered, and we should not expect necessarily to escape from that. We might hope to, but we shouldn't necessarily expect to. We experience the same kind of conflict that the Apostle Paul uh, has to experience. I mean, think about <clears throat> during that time, the governmental pressure that was coming down upon Christians to worship the emperor. You must bow to him. Not just Paul. All of you Christians are under that. You know, when the governing authorities come knocking at your door and ask, you know, you know, when you, when you hear the sound of all the music, are you going to bow down to the statue, to Nebuchadnezzar? Or will you go to the lions or the fiery furnace or to the guillotine because you don't bend to the state's wishes? They were facing this governmental pressure to worship the emperor and to dis disown Christ. Basically, they would be in the same boat that Paul was. Paul's suffering. They knew it firsthand. They saw it firsthand in Philippi, right? They saw him in jail. They saw him beaten. Uh, they knew that he had not fared well at Thessalonica in the city that he was before he came to them and so on, and, uh, or after, and yeah, afterwards, actually, in chapter 17 of Acts. And they were hearing about his suffering as a prisoner in Rome, and you know we should expect that we may suffer like our other partners in the faith, but we're not isolated from one another. We remember one another. We remember each other's chains. We have a solidarity with those who are suffering. Think of it, my friends. You and your brothers and sisters in Myanmar who are presently hiding in the forest have a solidarity with one another. You are, you are their brothers and sisters. Your family is being persecuted. Your family, some of them have been disappeared in China. Your family is persecuted in the Middle East. Think of it. You have a connection to them. Paul wants us to pray for him, to pray for those that are likewise persecuted. 
Paul, the, you know, they, the Philippians were already partners with him in this. He says in Philippians 1.7, I have you in my heart inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the, gospels, of the gospel, you are partakers with me of grace. So they were partakers with him. We may wonder why, why haven't we faced such sufferings? Or maybe I, I worry about how I will handle that suffering when it comes. Or maybe we feel guilty that we had a situation in which we should have taken it on the chin, but we kind of clammed up and didn't say anything and didn't take the suffering we would have. We should pray that as a Christian and any Christian who is suffering will do so in the way Paul tells us here. If we stand fast in one spirit, strive together for the faith of the gospel, and are not intimidated by the persecution of believers, we probably will suffer persecution. But if we just kind of shrink into our little cubbyhole and don't do anything, then we will maybe avoid it. But will we be faithful Christians? Paul's hope is not only that the church will be of like mind and working together for the gospel, that they would be also less frightened, not intimidated by their adversaries. Our command here to, is to have our conduct worthy of Christ's gospel. Part of that is to be unified, and part of it is not to fear our adversaries. This should be our aim, whether our spiritual overseers are looking on at the time or not, because God is always watching. <clears throat> Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the privilege that we have had. You have graciously granted us that privilege this morning to look at your word and to prepare ourselves for the eventuality that there may be more inconvenience and more suffering that would come our way as Christians. Strengthen us, Lord, for that. Me, the deacons, the men and women in the church, the children, and especially, Lord, let none shrink away in fear because of what may come. But let us be unified, and as we have opportunity, to preach the gospel, to seek the salvation of our kindred and acquaintances, as our church covenant said. Help us to be found faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.